As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan. I'm Meg. You are listening to a show all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. Becca Rue, executive director of the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association, is back on the show. This time we have a completed collective bargaining agreement. Now, while we've known some of the major details, you know, equal pay, for a while, this is the first time that we're actually going to have a chance to read through the entire document that should now be available on the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association website. Now, much like Megan Burke came on the show to help guide us through the NWSL CBA, Becca's offered to do the same, which also gives us a chance to maybe expand upon some of the bigger things in this giant document that aren't equal pay, and to explain some of the context around how we got to finally having this PDF to read through. Now, before we get to the rest of today's episode, as always, you can show your support of full-time, plus get all of our women's soccer coverage and everything else The Athletic has to offer on our site and on our app. You can subscribe right now at theathletic.com slash full-time. It's always one of our very best deals, and also it's good timing ahead of the Men's World Cup. Now, this is a pretty hefty episode, so the news recap will be back next week. And honestly, apologies in advance if my voice sounds a little weird this episode. Well, fortunately, not COVID. Apparently, I have given in to what used to be the very traditional end of NWSL season cold this year. I have not missed this. Becca Rue is the executive director of the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association. She was on the pitch at Audi Field alongside players like Crystal Dunn, Sam Mewis, and Becky Sauerbrunn for the signing of the team's new collective bargaining agreement with U.S. Soccer. And she's here to discuss this very document. I want to start with this. Oh, wait, do we do like a hello? I, no, I just, because I do all the intro outro before. Great. So, <laughs> okay. yeah. No, I try to, we're, we're just going to launch right in. Great. Okay. I, I do want to start with this concept, though, of for so long, the U.S. Women's National Team PA was was over here and then the lawsuit was over here and they were two things that weren't mixing. Right. So every time I remember trying to tweet like it's the players, not the players association involved in this lawsuit. And then suddenly these things merged very, very like meaningfully in that the CBA became a big part of the settlement of the lawsuit. And so it was kind of this whole concept 
really reversed. And I, I want to know your thought process <laughs> this, this that time because it really was this two kind of separate processes suddenly becoming very intertwined. Yes, and I would say they're somewhat intertwined from the beginning. So I think one clarification is you're correct. I was, we would talk and it was the players as plaintiffs and they had their own class action lawsuit. And that was one path that was somewhat on its own in terms of going through the court system within the U.S. And then there's the Players Association, where many of those plaintiffs are also our members, where we also have a separate process that's called the collective bargaining agreement and negotiation process. And they had two different, but somewhat always intertwined. And the reason they were always intertwined is we are the exclusive agent as it relates to player working conditions and comp for future. And so if there was ever going to be some sort of solution, whether it was in the courts or through a settlement, it was going to have to require that they weren't all only resolving the past, but also that if you had an agreement on day zero, you couldn't then go to the next day and there'd be some sort of discrepancy and it'd be resolved. And so we had to also resolve the future part of it. And you are correct to say the settlement agreement that was announced in February 20. February 22nd of this year made it very explicit. Um, but And that wasn't so different than it always was going to have to be for any settlement agreement to occur. Candidly, I thought we would reach a new CBA that would resolve equal pay and equal working conditions going forward before the settlement occurred. And that then reversed. Yeah. We still are getting to the same place, which is what we always wanted, which is great. Right. I, I do want to talk to you. Obviously, yes, there's always the past part of the lawsuit, mm -hmm. future part of the CBA. But I want to specifically talk to you about one specific part of this future thing is that this CBA has been running already, but is through 2028. And I was just wondering if you could talk through the selection of 2028 as the end year. Yes, I think generally in labor, management wants longer agreements and labor wants shorter agreements. And this was also a negotiation that occurred between three parties in the U.S. soccer, the men's national team PA, and the women's national team PA. And so I wouldn't say that 2028 was the date that we always were, was on the table. Um, it just became the date that we all agreed upon. And it makes sense when we think about dates um, in order for there to be consistency between the two agreements, between the men's PA and the RPA, we also had to find a date that was going to work based on the international match calendar. And so if we were to do a four-year CBA such that it was, or even a five-year, such that it ended 2026, suddenly we're negotiating in the year leading into our World Cup and the men would have been negotiating during their World Cup that's occurring in Canada, US and Mexico. That's not ideal. And mm -hmm. so it was really about finding the most, the optimal date. And that's where 2028 came in. It also helps both parties in terms of we have a longer runway to see if this new model is going to work. We all have some cost savings because uh, negotiating a CBA for all parties is, is actually a pretty expensive endeavor, both in terms of cost of lawyers, but also cost on the player's time because they have to, especially the women, commit a lot of time to this process. And so pushing it out um, is, was something that we were all open to at the end. Yeah. I want to talk to you about Cindy Parlo-Cohn's role in this. Um, I, I hosted a little panel with you and Cindy in London yeah. on short notice. And obviously, like, you know, having been around this thing since that first call about the EEOC complaint, right? Mm -hmm. Like, 
have kind of watched the relationship with various leadership change drastically throughout the like there have been some times where it's felt like really far apart and then I think Cindy coming in really did provide this alternate path but you know now there is the sense of like oh the the two of you are on panels together and talking about this like shared accomplishment and there is like a very different vibe I think around the U.S. women's national team and U.S. soccer and just what it, yeah. it feels like it took a really long time to get here. It did. The I will tell you, say, Meg, you have the honor of being the only one that's moderated a panel so far between Cindy and I together in London on the day before the game versus England. The it, It's not common that uh, you have so much turnover in a five, six-year period. I think that our union had two or a leadership change when Rich Nichols and was the PA executive director through 2016. And then I took over in early 2017. And in that time period, there's been three different presidents, three or four different CEOs, if you count the interim, three different general counsels for U.S. soccer and three different labor outside counsels for U.S. soccer. A lot of turnover through that. And when Cindy took over from Carlos in March of 2020, That was one, I don't think we should all just recognize that Cindy does a full-time job as a volunteer. It is not an ideal setup in the way that U.S. soccer has their governance structure, but all credit to her, there was a dumpster fire of an organization that she has really helped revamp. And it is now feeling more like a partnership. We are always going to have disagreements. And it's nice to have people on the other side of the table that are more about solution oriented versus just trying to undermine each other at every turn. And so that's much more of a way I like to operate. And I think the players like to operate. And so Cindy's role in this was instrumental as was the staff that she and her board brought in first with the CEO and then with the new staff that they hired, it was, and then their outside counsel, um, really a completely different experience. I think we had an early call in when we first started in April or March of 2021 and one player afterwards was like, this is just night and day difference in the tone and the type of discussion we're having compared to 2017 when we had last done actual CBA negotiations. Yeah. Not surprising. Also, you know, in addition to Cindy, JT Batson just came in as new CEO. Like what are your first impressions of him? I've, I've now run into him a couple of times at, at games and he again like the tone feels really really different in a good way agreed my feelings are positive i've been fortunate to have a call one-on-one with him and then met with him a couple times in person i think he's really curious smart he's listening and that's what you need especially right now with what the U.S. soccer landscape is is working through i think they're coming out of the back end of a number of litigation matters that are finally mostly being put to rest and they have a whole new task force on abuse abuse reform that's really necessary and I know he's really jumped in there it's not an easy role and I think the board and U.S. soccer have found a good leader that is hopefully the right person at the right time yeah I know you brought up 2017 and I do want to circle back around because there's been something that we've spoken about a lot and I really, I want to dig into this because if you're a person on the internet with an opinion about the U.S. Women's National Team, you have seen this argument. And I think it's really helpful to 
to dig into this before we actually get into the CBA because so much of the discussion around the U.S. Women's National Team is not necessarily this productive discussion of the merits and a lot of it has been simplified down, but there's always been this argument against the women deserve more because at one point they played a scrimmage against the U15s at, of FC Dallas and they lost mm-hmm. in this scrimmage. And it it got out there. It was on the FC Dallas website at some point. I actually went to go try to pull up that article. It no longer exists on the internet. Maybe FC Dallas was like, oh, this is bad and it shouldn't be on our website anymore. Um, but like there is this kind of sense of like, uh, yes, we the, the, the people on the internet are all economic experts and we have firm mm-hmm. opinions about the U.S. Women's National Team. How do you set something like that aside? Do you set that aside? Does it eat you up inside the way that it eats me up inside? Well, seeing the comments on the internet, yes. I wish I could say no, but yes, I think that that does. It, it is a fascinating thing that became public. So I think let's just back up and say, Meg, how many scores of scrimmages do you know about None. of any of the other U.S. Women's National Team scrimmages? Zero. Negative, negative. They have some sort of scrimmage in just about every camp. That one was played with FC Dallas on April 2nd of 2017. It was a Sunday. We had been told by U.S. Soccer that they were going to exercise their management right um, to implement a best last final offer if we didn't negotiate during camp in the April window. So I went in March 31st, which was a Friday. We negotiated all day on April 1st while the players had training too. So that meant we've, we've now published some photos of that and we had the entire team was in with us during negotiations rather than doing recovery, rather than being in the treatment room. Some of them were in the room with us until midnight on Saturday night and then back in there with us on Sunday morning. And somebody at US Soccer tried to tell them not to go to that scrimmage because that person had a plane to catch such that they wanted negotiations to continue. And the players said, no, we're going to go do our job and go to a scrimmage. And Turns out um, so somebody texted me afterwards said, this is not fair for us to do negotiations during our job. We're all fighting for our spots on this team. And it is, we just played like shit. And then also it became public that that happened. So there's a lot of dynamics that were happening. I always have had a conspiracy theory that somebody at US Soccer decided to make that one fact public. And here today, you still can see it almost on a, on a pretty frequent basis it's on the internet. Yeah. One comment about playing women playing boys is they they scrimmage both to have tougher competition and to test things and so I don't that's why you don't ever hear about the scores it's not just necessarily about the score but that obviously became a fact that everybody is focused on yeah it's, it's really unfortunate I mean, I remember when I used to live in Boston, the U.S. women's hockey team would play high school boys teams on the regular, right? And they would be open to the public. But half the time, like the whole back half of this scrimmage would be, okay, we're running power play drills or like, okay, we're running, you know, defensive drills. We're trying to to run through specific game states. So that way, when we actually go to an Olympics, correct, we've we've face this against like players that are actually bigger than us too. <laughs> Correct. So yeah, it is. It's just very fascinating to see. Like I, I took a little spin through some articles about it and it is really funny to see like the messaging is like, Oh, they lost. Oh, we shouldn't really take this into account because it's a scrimmage and you know, like they're probably trying some things, but like, isn't it weird that they lost to the boys and, but it, it's become this thing that is like just taken on a life of its own and, and, 
the reply guys love to bring that up. So yeah, it is the number one. I mean, that is kind of like an instant block for me is if that scrimmage comes up and I'm just like, if that's what you have, then we know the state of your argument. Thank you. <laughs> Twitter is a dumpster fire too right now. And that's still a good tactic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, d- I do want to talk to you. I mean, there's a lot, the, the CBA is a, a gigantic document and I do want to get into some of the specifics of it, but I mean, we can't talk about the CBA without talking about the equal pay and the equal prize money, really the part at the, at the heart of it. But I think I want to really just start with the, the idea that there's a lot more to the CBA than just the hashtag equal pay, right? So much. Yes. You, it will be made public and people can read it in their spare time. I'm sure everybody is dying to do so, but it's a long, it's a much longer document. We've added we did a lot of work to, with U.S. Soccer to add a number of things, both in their players' benefit and also management's benefit. And there's a lot to go through. So let's dig yeah. in, Mike. Yeah, I, I want to start with this idea, too, of so there is equal pay, but I, I want to frame it on how mm-hmm. because there are still benefits for some specific players. So if you could yes. maybe explain why. You know, I, I, to be fair, I don't know when we're going to get the, the CBA for the men's national team out in the world, right? Like that's not necessarily my concern. That's, that's Paul or Sam's concern on my team. But in terms of you might see, like if you're trying to compare like for like between Walker Zimmerman and someone on the U S women's national team, there might still be differences. Yes. And I think to back up in addition to the 2017 tone being very different, which was also exemplified by what happened around that, you that scrimmage with the boys and somebody physically standing in the doorway trying to prevent them from going and then somehow the result becoming public. The other really big difference was there wasn't a common goal of what we were really trying to achieve. I think U.S. soccer was very much treating it as a zero-sum game and this round was more about we're going do not agree to anything unless we all can say it's equality Um, and that was a stated goal from the very beginning for the men, the women, and U.S. soccer. And so then you have to say, all right, well, it's not equal pay for equal work. And one thing we have been conscious of is the women have actually done more work. And I'm not just talking about more games, more camp dates, et cetera. It's also more in what they've been doing in the past as it relates to more media. They also used to fill out daily wellness surveys and a number of other duties that the men were not doing. For instance, a Walker Zimmerman was not having to do mostly because those types of duties for him run through their his club, whereas mm-hmm. for the women, while our club game is getting much stronger and has really is night and day as well between 2017 and today, we still have some room for improvement on the club game such that there's still a reliance in some ways on U.S. soccer. And frankly, U.S. soccer is relying on the players to do certain things so that they are best prepared to compete at the national team and international level. So what we have today is what we said for equal work. So the things that Walker Zimmerman and Becky Sauerbrunn that are, they are doing, they are going to get paid the same rate of pay for that equal or same work. Anything that Becky has to do that is in addition to what Walker might do, she is also now going to receive something called the benefits player package. And so with that comes extra duties additional duties and also additional benefits. And for us and our benefits players starting this year, they received, they are EAHI. So they're health insurance from USOPC, which comes from US 
OPC with the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, but they are des- those players that are eligible are designated by each national governing body. So US Soccer designates those players for that insurance policy. US Soccer is also providing vision and dental insurance, and those players are uh, privy to some other benefits as it relates, relates to parental and uh, injury leave. Got it. All right. That's a good place to kind of set the stage just so that way we understand like it is not necessarily a one-to-one comparison, but I think that there are also, so setting aside, you know, like there article seven in the CBA says like, this is the the compensation structure is identical and does not discriminate in favor of either national team or any individual player. And then we go through the full compensation breakdown. We don't need to get into that because it's a lot of charts. It's not podcast friendly, but I want to get into some of the kind of extra stuff in terms of commercial revenue share and attendance bonuses and things like that, because this is now where we're, we're maybe thinking about everybody benefits if mm-hmm. everybody does better, right? Like this now really is this kind of like one nation, one team concept of like, if everybody is performing and everybody's bringing in people and attendance, everybody benefits. But in terms of the commercial revenue share, like it is kind of an interesting premise because I don't think it's quite as straightforward probably as the CBA makes it makes it seem because there are kind of like bans if under 55 million in commercial revenue, there's no share 55 to 75 million is a number and it's a 10% share 75 million plus it's a 15% share. But I was kind of hoping that you could maybe walk us through how some of that might actually like play out in, in the real world. Yeah. First to back up on your article seven, which is the equal pay acknowledgement, the exact same language exists in the men's CBA. And so the parts of compensation that we're about to talk through are the same for the men. The only difference that, that we just spoke about is, is it relates to these benefits players where our players are still doing extra work, meaning duties outside of camp usually yep. you know, in exchange for those extra benefits. And yes, there's a number of, the rate of pay is the same as it relates to their on-field work. So same rate of pay for per diem, same rate of pay for every game you're in camp, you get a base comp um, appearance fee. And then there's the same bonuses based on your performance and the type of compensation. So revenue share and the way it works is not as straightforward as here's a percentage of all revenue. It's a little bit more complicated. So I'm going to try to talk through it and simplify it as much as possible. There's an amount of money that comes into U.S. soccer. And once they've deducted any agency fees that they had to pay, let's say that amount is $100 for all of their broadcasts and all of their sponsorship revenue or their partnership revenue. U.S. soccer then gets to deduct 15% to help cover their own commercial operations. And then the remainder then goes through effectively a tax table for that has marginal rates that increase as the bands get higher. And so the first band is zero to 55 million. That is zero. So between zero and 55 million, nothing gets shared back with the players. And then for uh, the next 20 million, so between 55 and 75 million, 10% is getting shared back with the women's team. So that means $2 million would go to the pool of the women's team. And for the balance of Oh yeah, the next 10 million would be 15%. So above 75 million, now there's a 15% marginal revenue share rate that's getting to the the players. And so the total, if it was 100 million came in coming in after the exclusions, after US Soccer's recapture rate, 3.5 million would get shared back with the players. So you're getting an effective revenue share rate of three and a half percent. Okay. On top of all of their other types of compensation. So 
We think that that is great because one, U.S. soccer is not quite close to 100 million. We should also say that would mean they're doubling their commercial revenues if we're talking through that example, which we believe they actually may be able to do um, and have had great indications and seeing the team that has been built at U.S. soccer have a lot of faith. So this just aligned a lot of incentives and I think adds a cherry on top for a really good compensation structure that we already had as it related to the first part where it's just the basic per diem game, et cetera. Well, I mean, you think about 2026 World Cup coming Mm -hmm. up and that potential influx of sponsorship money ahead of that. But also, you know, if U.S. soccer does decide to bid for 2027 in the Women's World Cup, like there is a potential one-two punch there that could could get you in the the top band yes there i think there will be a lot of windfall from that those are different assets so fifa owns a lot of those assets yeah. so we wouldn't be getting any revenue share from those necessarily right. and US, anything that u.s soccer gets from fifa as it relates to hosting those things also would not go into this pool yeah and there will be a lot of halo effects that we right that's why i think we have a lot of faith and it, credit to u.s soccer i mean they were really did come in with how do we build a partnership amongst ourselves and the players? And this is where it goes back to Cindy, I think. And Karen Leitzow and, and some of the other staff that were really part of these negotiations, Greg Fike, like how are we creating partnerships such that we, you are getting to share in some upside and therefore you're also doing extra work for these things. Right. And, and to this other point, attendance bonuses, I think are another big piece of this where, you know, maybe you do the math out and it doesn't feel like that much money. But then when you do the math out for like calendar year in terms of like if the U.S. women's national team successfully sells out some of these venues and it can sit like it does add up, I think. Yeah. So that's the next component. So in yeah. addition to revenue share, the other upside is around attendance bonus, which isn't a new comp component. The men had it first then we the women's national team PA added it in. So the previous CBA we had. $1.50 per ticket. And then there were some sellout bonuses, or if we uh, beat our average attendance, there were some bonuses. And so that concept has continued on. The amount has increased. And yes, as you just pointed out, there's also still the concept of a sellout bonus, such that um, rather than it being a fixed dollar number, it goes to a percentage of tickets sales, which frankly, US soccer's been able to charge a higher price um, in certain, especially for premium. And so then those higher prices get factored in and and players participate in that as well. Interesting. All right. I want to shift topics kind of entirely because one of the other big things in the CBA, and, you know, I had a big discussion about the NWSL CBA in a very similar fashion with Megan Burke, but there is a lot in the CBA about safe work environment, but also Mm -hmm. privacy. Um, And I think the privacy piece is, is really interesting. And I do kind of want to start there just because there's an, (laughs) actually, you know what, let me take a step back because I feel like when you're reading through, there is this sense of like, Ooh, a lot of this is in here because you know, something went wrong at some point, right? Like we have to specifically put in a section to be like, Hey, you can't use our medical data for X, Y, Z, or like, That is just the vibe I got while reading of just being like, there's a story here and I'm not necessarily asking you to like betray what those stories are, but a lot of this feels based out of stuff that has gone wrong, potentially. Probably a good assessment as you read through it. I will also add that every bargaining unit, you get smarter as you go through collective processes. So we're on our fifth CBA now, that's right. 
the NFLPA's CBA is like 500 pages. The WNBA Players Association is 300. You know, all of these different issues arise. And, and also for U.S. soccer, I mean, there's a bunch of language. And they were mostly from learnings from the last, in my case, six almost six years of, of working in this role. Yes, I think that's just the basic answer of, yes, we all contract around new issues that arose. We also learned from other players associations. And so a lot of the data privacy was very much copied off of the NFLPA and um, Sean Sansevieri and his team's work and also was a necessary thing based on some experiences we had. Yeah. I do want to talk about more specifically the safe work stuff because it, it feels mm-hmm. like this was in some ways a lot of a direct response to some of the issues that we've seen arise over the past year. But, you know, the fact that there is going to be training, not just for staff, but also for players, there's going to be an annual review of the training to make sure that it's actually like enough, right. Um, That there are reporting mechanisms. There's a specific section in here that says that most meetings between a women's national team player and a federation employee or service provider have to take place in a hotel lobby, public space or office, right? No hotel rooms, which we know have been a direct issue in the NWSL. And was this, was this part of the original CBA negotiations or was it kind of a direct response to a lot of what we've seen over the past year? These negotiations were long. So we started in April of twenty. 21 really formally or March at the end of March, 2021, really formally negotiating. We had something, a semblance that this would be a new article that would be added. We had a safe uh, health and safety section in our previous CBA, but if you, we just go around the world of like what has happened in the last five years, you had Harry, sorry, Harvey Weinstein, Larry Nassar. And so it wasn't just in response to, the atrocities that became public largely through the work of you and Molly Hensley Clancy. It was also just looking around the industry and working with other unions and organizations that do this type of work. I would say Time's Up is a big one. We, we had already mm-hmm. done a lot of their work from the, that they had done in the entertainment industry. And so a lot of this is actually modeled after things that they did as it related to casting calls. And then with the Larry Nassar situation, that's also another one where there was some learnings that we all should be applying. And so there was a really conscious effort on all sides to include language around that that would provide a a map and clear rules about what is and is not okay, such that we can hopefully eradicate um, as much of this abuse as possible. In terms of the the players association role in some of you know like the training part of it um i mean do you do you see maybe like a a way to lead in this moment in terms of like obviously there are national team players who have really been directly involved in a lot of ways in in some of the nwsl stuff but obviously again the work with time's up um but you know, having talked to the folks at NWCL who are working on the joint investigation, there is the sense of like this work can be used and applied in other spaces. And I'm just in terms of like what what is in the CBA, do you think maybe, OK, we can we can take this and, and bring it to other women's sports spaces, maybe? I hope so. I think that's one of the, the beauties of Megan and I working very close together, but also other players association and frankly with Beef Pro, there is a lot of 
I'm not trying to say that we're going to be the leader of it, but we very much are trying to be part of the process to both help develop solutions that make the most sense and can be actually implemented while also learning from others that are going through similar things. And for those that aren't trying to do any work, encouraging them to look at various solutions that we are, are implementing. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. I wanted to dig into a couple of smaller sections just because like, you know, this is a major, major document. There's a lot like, and there are, there are a couple things that really just like, as I was reading through, I was like, oh, this is, I find this really interesting. One was the fact that there's actually policy in here about how players get assigned Jersey numbers, because mm -hmm. I feel like that is such a, you know, like that I feel like there's always something about like, oh, someone's coming into camp and they've got like this number and that's that point. But like, it is specifically spelled out how these yeah. numbers get passed. And I, I found that fascinating, like that it has to be codified. Like, is, yeah, that a, is that I, coming from the players or is that like, uh, hey, we got to <laughs> we got to settle this down before we get into a situation? I think a little of both that what we actually codified was more similar to practice. So mm -hmm. it's not so much something that was new. And typically the Federation is going to assign numbers one through at least 23, which is the minimum number of rosters or players will have on any roster, at least for a friendly and, and most tournaments. And then there's obviously some numbers that will be above that. So if there's a player who's typically a specific number who's injured and not in camp, their number will be assigned to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And if that player is in camp and has seniority through their number of caps, they get their number. I think there was a previous coach on the men's side that liked to change the numbers based on players' positions in any given camp. And that a number, and, and we've seen a number of court cases on this, like a number is part of a player's identity. It's yeah. part of your name, image, and likeness. And so that was also a big reason of why we wanted to codify it because it is part of the player's brand and part of what we as the Players Association do around licensed consumer products. It's really hard to get companies to make something for a big player if their number is going to change. Yeah. At any, on, a, on a regular any basis, basis, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just one of those things. It's it's Article Twenty One C. If anybody wants to go read it, yeah. it is like that was one that, that got me. The other one, and I mean, you're a Ted Lasso watcher, so if, mm -hmm. when I make this reference, but I call it basically the the Sam Obasanya clause, where it's Article Fifteen D Two B. Um, but it really like I found it fascinating that it's included in the CBA because it allows a player to have a good faith objection to potential work with a, a brand or a sponsor. Um, and the specific example is given in the CBA of Hobby Lobby. Mm -hmm. And I mean, so first I want to ask you, like, obviously the, the example is kind of presented in one fashion, but like, does this maybe actually allow a player, I'm trying not to name names, but like, you know, it, it can be applied to players who might have good faith objections in a multitude of ways, right? Where we might not necessarily agree with it but they don't feel comfortable wearing something rainbow, right? Or something for, for that sort of thing as well. Does it allow both ways or is it kind of intended to, to follow more in the example in the, in the text? Of course. I mean, I, I think the Hobby Lobby example is, is probably going to be read as like a specific leaning either politically or socio your social beliefs. Like there's obviously our, our intent is to protect players regardless of their belief. The, the rainbow numbers is it, 
I'd have to go back and look, but this is more about um, brand. Yeah. So it's more, it's about- more like if you're, if you're like Geico's coming in and being like, hi, we want you in a rainbow, right? Like it's more that vibe. Yeah. I don't know that that would be a situation we would allow anyways for the brand <laughs> to be dictating that yeah. as it relates to U.S. soccer. So that, that it's more about as players are playing in a game or in training and there's B-roll being captured that could then be packaged up and with their image and used under our group likeness rights that have been assigned or um, granted to U.S. Soccer in a limited way around sponsorship. If a player doesn't want their likeness to be included in something for that brand because of their good faith moral objection, then they have a right to do that. Got it. Yeah. It was just a very like interesting you know, like that section on kind of the the obligations of the player, like it gets into a lot of different elements that I think, you know, you, you think, okay, I, I have a general sense of what a player's responsibilities might be. And then like you're into like the fifth subsection of an article and you're like, oh, okay, this is like way more involved than I actually ever thought about. I know that section is long. It also all used to be within the uniform player agreement. My goal was to get the uniform player agreement to four pages. I think we only got it to 17 and we moved the rest of it because it was much longer into this article you're referring to. There was a really big effort on all party side to actually write down a number of things that weren't written down such that conflicts arose during the past. And so now clarifying a lot of that is helpful, I think, for all parties, for players, for staff. And we don't need to have silly, silly misunderstandings when there was an opportunity to clarify. And so that was where a lot of work went to. Got it. All right. It is, we're recording this in in early November. Um, The Men's World Cup is about to start. And obviously now with the CBAs in place, there is, I think, a real incentive to root for the men's national team and to, to yeah. care about the men's national team, not just for me as a, as a personal Matt Turner fan, but um, you know, that there is a sense of fortunes being tied together. Um, and I'm just wondering if, if, you know, I think it's kind of, it, it's a very complicated world cup in a number of ways. Right. But there mm-hmm. is this sense of this is really the first main event that we're getting as part of this new CBA. So what are your kind of emotions around, you know, watching and and following the men's national team this month? Well, we are in early November. To make it more specific, I was at the roster reveal last night in New York, and it was, you always are just so happy for those players. My heart breaks for those that didn't make the final roster as well. But no, I think there's a always been a sense of, I mean, I'm a soccer fan, so I'm going to cheer on the USA. I think all of our players would have anyways, regardless of this new structure. And yes, you're correct. Uh, the Their success is our success and vice versa. So there's a true rooting interest, one nation, one team, in the performance for the men in Qatar and the women next summer in New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, it's fun to now actually reverse New Zealand and Australia, considering that we now know the path. Because in my head, it's Australia and New Zealand, and I'm like, we're going to New Zealand. Like, we got to... Right. Consciously are doing that now. (laughs) All right, Becca. um, Thank you for the time and for walking through some of the bigger concepts. Um, if If I get a lot of questions about some of the specifics, I might drag you back on the show so that we can go through this giant PDF of joy and 
specifics and, you know, all the things that I'll get to think about for the next six years. Yeah, Meg, I think there, there's a lot here. I appreciate you going through it and appreciate the time. And I think for anybody that's listening, there's there's a, a lot of good nuggets in there. One thing we didn't talk about for some reason, we didn't even talk about the scheduling article. How do we I know that? that's because I don't want to open myself up to, to nonsense. <laughs> like I, there there is a lot. And, you know, we've we've talked a lot about the international match calendar. And but like now to have real specifics in terms of like even a timeline of players getting notified of camp call-ups and you know i think to to every cba's point but to every conversation i've had with you or megan burke like players like knowing what they're doing mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think the cba there's a lot in here that is going to provide that kind of exact timing <laughs> yes that there's definitely we, uh, a theme, but it, the, there was a previous scheduling article. It's evolved. It's more specific. Yes, there's a date by which players are to be notified that they're even coming into camp, and that helps with. It's like any worker; you just want to know what your schedule is, so I can plan the rest of you can plan your life outside of work, and it's no different here. But yeah. one day we'll we'll dig into scheduling and potentially some other things. And in the meantime, thank you for the time. Yeah, thank you, Becca. Appreciate it. I make. Thank you to Becca for the time. There are links in the show notes to all the relevant spots to follow the U.S. Women's National Team's Players Association. All right, one more thing. Marjorie and I just started season five of The Crown. We're very excited about the show being back, but I'm also doing double duty on Netflix trying to watch the new FIFA documentary. I'm very curious to know everyone's thoughts on both of these things. Again, for all things full-time, you can visit fulltimepod.com. Links for all the major podcast platforms in one spot, plus more information about the show. Again, if you want to subscribe to The Athletic and support full-time and all of our women's soccer coverage, you can do that right now at theathletic.com slash full-time. My name is Meg. You've been listening to Full-Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. Full-Time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. I'm Meg. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.